Hello and welcome to The Hot Seat. We're here with Thomas Leeper, fellow in the LSE Department of Government, to discuss Donald Trump's inauguration and what we can expect from his presidency. Welcome, Thomas. Thanks for having me. An inauguration speech is traditionally where a president sets out their vision. What vision was Trump trying to communicate and how was it received? So I think traditionally uh, presidents give a very hopeful message, a very inspirational one, about how the country should come together uh, and move forward uh, in a unified, uh, as a unified nation. So the striking thing about Donald Trump's speech is that he didn't really make any efforts to do that. Uh, he did not attempt to address the fact that he lost the popular vote by a substantial uh, margin uh, and the fact that a huge number of people are quite dissatisfied with the fact that he is president. Instead, he chose to stick to the common themes of his campaign, which were, uh, as he said repeatedly during the speech, America first. That he would be putting America first with respect to foreign policy, America first with respect to trade policy, uh, America first with respect to our relationships with international organizations like the United Nations, NATO, and uh, American allies in Europe. So I think he set a tone uh, that very much distances himself from the traditions of the presidency, and one that uh, unfortunately doesn't leave us with a lot of specifics other than that, the traditional allies of the United States should likely be concerned about exactly what America first means for them. Trump made lots of headline-grabbing promises on the campaign trail, but what does his cabinet appointment signal about his policy goals and how will they work in practice? Yeah, this is a fascinating point, I think, because Trump uh, was very successful during the campaign at basically not laying out any specifics with respect to policy. We know a handful of things. He wants to build a wall between the United States and Mexico. He wants to end free trade as we know it. That includes uh, abandoning uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which he did yesterday, uh, pulling out of NAFTA or substantially renegotiating it, and dramatically changing our foreign policy. Those are the handful of things that he said uh, in an articulate way and repeatedly during the campaign. He also talked about lots of other things, um, but in very vague ways. So one thing that can happen when a president appoints uh, members of the cabinet, but also lower ranking political officials, is that those people are known for particular uh, kind of policy stances. They're experts in something or advocates of particular um, policy positions. This is where Trump's decisions uh, about who to appoint to, to top-level positions are very interesting because in many respects, uh, he's appointed people with no obvious political stance. So for example, um, the selections for the Secretary of the Treasury, for Department of State, are people with very, very limited or perhaps no political experience whatsoever. Um, in uh, the domain of education, the uh, woman that he's appointed to Secretary of Education has a very, very clear policy stance on one issue. Uh, with respect to uh, charter schools and vouchers, that is uh, allowing parents who send their children to public schools to instead send them to uh, essentially private institutions paid for by taxpayers. But that's the only thing we know about her education policy. So we're seeing throughout his cabinet selections kind of people with very vague policy stances or perhaps clear stances on a single issue. And then when we look collectively at the whole set of cabinet appointees, we see that Actually, many of them have uh, disagreeing views on kind of core policy issues like trade, like foreign policy, national security, and so forth. So what I think we can expect is that uh, 
we don't know what will happen, but what we do know is that these individuals are in conflict with one another, and it should be a quite rivalrous uh, first few months of the Trump campaign as different uh, people who have been appointed to cabinet posts kind of uh, barter and fight for, uh, for leadership uh, in, that, in that body. What can we make of the Women's March protests held the day after the inauguration? This is a huge, uh, a huge moment, I think, especially for uh, for women and also just for uh, people on the kind of left wing of politics in the United States. Uh, the Women's March was envisioned as something uh, for women to kind of make a statement about their dissatisfaction with uh, with Trump as someone who has uh, proclaimed very sexist views, who has personally engaged in uh, what arguably could be called sexual assault, and in fact bragged about doing so. So this is uh, something that came up in the uh, in the days following the election as kind of a, a just a statement by women to express some discontent with with Trump and also with uh, women standing in the United States. Um, so it's fascinating that the Women's March occurred the day after the inauguration. Um, estimates are that between Washington, D.C., as well as other cities across the United States, three million people participated, making it arguably one of the largest protests um, in recent memory, dwarfed perhaps only by the anti-Iraq war protests in 2003. Um, and certainly it's one of the largest protests or rallies ever to occur in, in D.C. Uh, I think it's a dramatic moment. Uh, but at the same time, it's a little unclear what the message is or what will come from that march. So it is a statement, a powerful statement perhaps, where a very large number of people and disproportionately women um, kind of made a statement that women's rights matter and equality matters. But there were also other messages during those rallies about uh, Trump's policies on immigration, on trade, um, issues that some other issues that had very little to do with women's rights specifically. So it's unclear what what exactly the takeaway is from that statement, other than that it is an expression of discontent um, you know, enacted by about one and a half percent of the American public, which sounds like a small number, but is actually an extremely large number when we think about this kind of direct action. So then the next question is, uh, what will come of that? And we have to kind of wait and see whether the participants in this rally uh, mobilize into a more uh, permanent social movement or if they choose to take on other forms of, of activ activism in order to, say, change policy or, or influence uh, the president or members of Congress. There's been an expectation that we might see a different Donald Trump once he entered the White House. Is there any sign of him changing his approach? I don't think so. <laughs> I think this has been a little bit of a, a fantasy that people have had for uh, the duration of, of the Trump campaign and now the Trump presidency. Um, a lot of political scientists talk about how uh, candidates pivot. So in a primary, <clears throat> excuse me, in a primary Candidates will tend to take kind of extreme views, maybe be a little bit more uh, boisterous than they would be in a general election because they have to appeal to a broader segment of the population. So people expected Trump to do that once he became the Republican nominee, that he would pull to the center ideologically and kind of, you know, t tone down his rhetoric a little bit. Um, we didn't see that. And we haven't seen it so far uh, once he's been elected or now in the last few days since he's actually been president. So I, I really don't expect him to change. I think we, we saw last year, you know, what Trump was. Uh, he's a, a boisterous character who is, you know, proud of his faults, uh, very concerned about his popularity, uh, and very vague about policy specifics. And I think we're going to continue to see Donald Trump play that character uh, all through uh, the coming four years. So we shouldn't get uh, too hopeful to see a, a dramatic change. Great. Thomas Leeper, thanks for joining us. Thank you.